Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to LibertyShield.com right now, use the code EPL25 and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homework company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now... On with the show. Welcome. 
What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast. Today is Monday. It is the 26th of February. Hope you're all well and had a great weekend. I had a fantastic weekend. Let it be known, a fantastic weekend. We had seven games in the Premier League, so let's jump into those. Crystal Palace 3, Burnley 0. The Oliver Glasner era is up and underway. They needed a bit of a helping hand from Burnley. Josh Brownhill sent off on 35 minutes after James Trafford inexplicably <clears throat> plays a terrible pass, which Lerma does really well to cut out. He's in on goal, and Brownhill pulls him back. It's it's a surefire red card. Now, Burnley will claim that Adam Wharton should also have been red carded. He had been booked, and he slid in for a challenge, which brought down the man. It could easily have been a second yellow. But I think the referee took into account he did try and pull his legs back. He didn't go in feet first. He sort of went in with his feet tucked and his shins out, protecting the opponent. It could have gone either way. I think the referee made the right call, but if he'd given a second jello, I wouldn't have argued it. Chris Richards put Palace one up on 68 minutes. Jordan Ayew doubled the lead on 71, and on 79, it was all over. Jean-Philippe Mateta with a penalty after Matthias Franca was taken down in the box. Burnley thought they'd pulled one back <clears throat> through David Datro-Fafana, but it was ruled out for offside. Aston Villa 4, Nottingham Forest 2. Ollie Watkins put Villa one up on four minutes after absolutely sensational work down the right. Can't think of the fellow's name now. Leo by Leon Bailey. Uh, Villa were two up on 29 minutes. Really nice move down the right involving Matt Cash and Jacob Ramsey. And Douglas Luis makes it two. Luis would make it three with a header from a good John McGinn cross before Forrest really woke up. Forrest scored in stoppage time at the end of the first half. Set piece that comes over, poorly defended, headed back across goal, and Niakata just lets it hit him and go in. So they go in 3-1 down. Within three minutes of the restart, Forrest are right back in this game at 3-2. Lovely little reverse ball by Divock Origi, and Morgan gives White with a gorgeous finish over Emmy Martinez. And Villa must have felt a little bit nervous at that point, but Leon Bailey wrapped it up. On 61, Yuri Thielemans plays in Watkins. Whether he was trying to find Bailey or trying to clip it over the goalkeeper and it hit the goalkeeper and went to Bailey, I'm not sure. But either way, Leon Bailey with the goal. And a big, big three points for a Villa team who are looking a little bit bare bones at the moment. So much so that they finished that game yesterday with Callum Chambers and Clement Longley as their starting centre-backs, which is in no way ideal in the Premier League. I'm not sure that would be ideal in the Championship, but it's definitely not in the Premier League, and certainly not when you're challenging for top four and Villa, putting themselves in a strong position to get that fourth spot this season. Manchester United won Fulham Two, this, the upset of the weekend, Fulham came into this game in atrocious away form. They had 
lost their previous, sorry, they drawn the previous away, which was at Burnley, where they went 2-0 up and then ended up throwing it away. Before that, they lost at Chelsea. Before that, they lost at Bournemouth heavily. They lost at Newcastle heavily. They lost at Anfield. And they lost at Villa Park. They drawn with Brighton and lost to Spurs and drawn at Crystal Palace and lost at City and drawn at Arsenal. They had won one away game all season. That came on the opening day of the season away to Everton. They were in desperate form away from home. 11 aways without a win. Shocking away form. And yet they were outstanding in this game. In the first half, they hit the post. Iwobi pulled a shot wide when he should have should have at least worked the goalkeeper. Onana made a couple of very, very good saves. One in particular from Pereira that he did really well to stretch and tip around the post. Fulham were the better team first half. But United still carried a threat because of the pace they had going forward. Now, one thing that was really interesting. No Hoysland. So Rashford goes up front. Ten Hag moved Garnacho from the right wing where he has been starting to the left wing where Rashford normally starts. And you would think Anthony is the obvious choice to come in here, right? Omari Forson was picked to play. He'd made one appearance in the Premier League, coming on as a sub against Wolves. He'd made three senior appearances. He's, by all accounts, very, very highly thought of at United, very talented player. I believe they nicked him from Spurs, and he was previously at West Ham. Very, very highly thought of. But he gets to start over a man the current manager paid 80-odd million to bring in. Odder is that when he was taken off, rather than bringing on Anthony, Ahmad Diallo was the one summoned from the bench. Now, Ahmad Diallo is a very, very talented player that United spent a considerable amount of money to bring to their club, 35 million. Prior to that game, he had played 10 times for United in the four seasons since he joined the club. Now, I know he'd been injured the early half of this season, but again, unusual that the manager would call on him and not the fella he had paid 80-odd million for. Said 80-odd million pound signing did make an appearance with about two minutes left. Fulham went one up in the second half through Calvin Bassey. Corner swung in. Bassey has a, a chance. It hits his own player. It bounces back to him, and he lashes it into the roof of the net, gives the keeper absolutely no chance. Through 65 minutes, Fulham had been by far the better team and fully deserved the win. For the next five to seven minutes, they remained the better team and looked more likely to score. And then they started to retreat into their shell, and they just invited 
united onto them and invited lots of pressure. And I think the plan was, because they brought on Adama Traore, the plan was to try and hit Fulham or to hit United on the counter. But Adama came on and he genuinely looked like he'd been woken up from a very long sleep. He looked slow. He looked groggy. He looked uncoordinated. And United piled on the pressure. And Harry Maguire missed a sitter from about three yards out with a header. But a couple of minutes later, he would make up for that. Bruno Fernandes cuts in off the left. It's a fairly tame shot. And Bert Leno, who dealt well with everything that had come his way, palms it out right to Maguire. Maguire finishes. It's 1-1. 89 minutes gone. Old Trafford stands up. The noise level raises. And you're expecting that United are going to get a win here. Scott McTominay is going to score. McTominay did have a chance, but he made a hames of it. And then on 97 minutes, Maguire with a weak header towards Ericsson. Adama Traore steps in, knocks the ball around Maguire, runs the other side of him, which is a long way around, and then does what Adama Traore does. He ran, and he ran, and then he ran some more. Again, he still looked a little bit slow because Harry Maguire was keeping pace with him. There was about a three-yard gap when Maguire started to chase him, and by the end of it, it was probably like a two-yard gap. But Adama, credit to him, had multiple options, picks the right option, delays the pass, gives it to Awobi. Awobi cuts back in, sends two United defenders to the shop, and then goes near post with it. And Onana had banked on him going far post and had taken a step and was ready to spring going one way. Awobi cuts it back into the near corner. Really, really good finish by Alex Awobi. And Fulham would have fully deserved three points from their trip to Old Trafford. That's 10 defeats in the league for Manchester United this season. Brighton and Hove Albion won. Everton won. Everton went 1-0 up on 73 through Jared Branthwaite. If a forward player scored this goal, you'd stand and applaud. The fact that it was a centre-back is outrageous. Brilliant first touch. And then a gorgeous sweeping shot into the far top corner from about 16 yards out. Tremendous. Billy Gilmore was sent off eight minutes later for a bit of a clumsy challenge on Amadou Onana. And it looked like that was going to be it. Everton were going to get three points and head north. Very, very pleased with themselves. But in the 95th minute, ball in from Pascal Gross. Lewis Dunk on the end of it. 1-1 and a share of the spoils. Brighton should have been a couple of goals up in the first half. They played some good football. Danny Welbeck messed up a really good chance after a nice move. Adingra maybe could have done a little bit better with an opportunity he had. But all things considered, a draw was probably the fair result. Uh, We'll have more on Everton in part two. Uh, Later games then on Saturday, Bournemouth won. Sheffield, sorry, Bournemouth won. Manchester City Sorry, Bournemouth nil. I, Bournemouth nil, Manchester City won. Um, not the most convincing performance by City, but you always felt like City had multiple more gears to go up. That if City needed to step up the levels, they could. 
Phil Foden scored on 24 minutes after an Erling Haaland shot was palmed into his path and then did a stupid celebration that he probably shouldn't do anymore. Um, Foden was dangerous throughout. Haaland was dangerous throughout. He'll be disappointed not to have scored. He had a couple of decent chances. Bournemouth had a couple of good chances that on another day maybe find their way in. There was a really good header from Unal late on that looked like it was going to go in. Ederson was forced into a couple of decent saves. Uh, one from Kirkes, one from one of the centre backs. Was it was it uh, Zabarni? I think it was the Zabarni header. On another day, that game ends in a draw. But on a different day, City could have won it 4-0 because they just didn't have to really go outside of a very comfortable pace. And I've seen people say, oh, City are the worst of the top three. Utter, utter nonsense. City understand that you don't need to play at 100 or you shouldn't need to play at 100% capacity to win a lot of these games. And that in February, you're managing your way through the schedule because you're playing in multiple competitions. So you don't overtax the players by trying to score six or seven when you get the same amount of points for one. You know? City, to me, are still favourites to win the league. Uh, Arsenal, four. Newcastle, one. Uh, Death, taxes and Arsenal scoring spawny goals. Um, 18 minutes in, corner comes across. Gabriel header, good save by Loris Karius, third-choice goalkeeper, having to fill in for the turn. I'm not sure what happens with Sven Botman. He seems to have glitched, and he kind of knocks it over his own line, and Karius can't keep it out, and it's 1-0. 24 minutes, lovely, lovely move. Beautiful ball clipped over the top. Martinelli gets on to it. Great cutback. Good finish by Kai Havertz from eight yards out. 65 minutes, Bakayo Saka stands up. Tino Livermento goes one way, cuts back. Left-footed shot. Not the best stroke shot he'll ever take, but well-placed and find its, finds its way in. And then on 69 minutes, another set-piece goal. Declan Rice's corner. Jakob Kivor with the near-post flick on. William Saliba, a little bit questionable whether he was offside and interfering. Very, very close to the goalkeeper as contact with the ball is made. Moves out of the picture. Goal is given. Goal is probably fine. 4-0. Joe Willock with a looping header pulled one back for Newcastle. But Newcastle looked all at sea, quite frankly. Um, Wasn't impressed at all with how they went about their business in this game. They've got a lot of players playing on very tired legs. Botman looks exhausted. Gamerish looks exhausted. Longstaff looks exhausted. Lewis Miley looks like he's played too much football already, and he's only because he's only seventeen. He shouldn't be playing this this frequently. Um, Isak clearly wasn't anywhere close to a hundred percent, but did have a couple of decent moments in the game. Toon, 
I think we'll be making a change this summer. I think Eddie Howe will go. I think Graham Potter or potentially Julian Nagelsmann. I think Nagelsmann is who they would want. I think Potter might be who they end up with. Uh, one game in the Premier League on Sunday. Wolves won Sheffield United nil. Sheffield United will be devastated. They were by far the better team for the first half hour. Rian Brewster had a couple of good chances. He looked lively. He looked like the player he promised to be a few years ago. James McAtee got in for a good 1v1 chance and couldn't take it. They were dominating in midfield using the 3v2 advantage. They were transitioning really quickly. It was really, really good stuff from Sheffield United for 30 minutes. And then the first time they were asked to defend, they couldn't do it. Neto breaks down the left, feeds it back to Reyna Nuri. He cuts in his right foot, clips the cross into the box. Pablo Sarabia drifts in and gets a free header. Uh, really good header, really well directed, but the fact that he was able to drift in and get a free header, it should be of major concern. He's five foot nine. He's not a big commanding player. He's not a player known for his ability in the air. But it's a really, really good header and fair play to him. Um, and that is it. That is our Premier League games. We obviously did have the EFL Cup as well. And in said EFL Cup, Liverpool won Chelsea nil. Virgil van Dijk with a 118th minute goal for Jurgen Klopp's side. Jurgen Klopp's side that was very much at bare bones with seven starters out, with teenagers galore in the squad, with 21 and under players galore in the squad. Embarrassing for Chelsea to lose to Liverpool team missing that many players. Realistically, looking at that Chelsea team, there's one starter missing, which is Reese James. Um, Nkunku should be a starter, but he was on the bench. He came on. You could maybe make a case that Fafana would start over De Sassi, and that's fair. So maybe two starters, definitely one, maybe two. Liverpool had seven. Six, maybe seven. Depends on how you view the midfield. Dominic Zabozla is definitely a starter. Trent is definitely a starter. Allison is definitely a starter. Salah, Nunes and Jota are definitely starters. It's just a matter of whether you think Curtis Jones is a starter or Waturo Endo is a starter. Now, I look at it as Liverpool have four starters for three-man midfield, but whether it's six or seven, it's a lot more than Chelsea. And regardless then, Curtis Jones is the most valuable squad player they have. Not just those seven starters, Joel Matip, their number three centre-back, Thiago Alcantara, probably the best midfielder at the club, and Stefan Bessetic, who's the best young player, all missing. I went more in-depth on this game on the Daily Red, if you want to go and listen to that on Anfield Index. <clears throat> I, I just, I can't believe that Liverpool won this game, but yet I can fully believe they won this game. The difference in maturity between the Liverpool young players, including 19-year-old Clark, 19-year-old McConnell, and 18-year-old Dans, and the young Chelsea players, including 22-year-old Caicedo, 22-year-old Cole Palmer, 22-year-old Nicholas Jackson, 20-year-old Malo Gusto, was night and day. Night and day. Different class 
of mindset. Moises Caicedo does not look like a player who's very happy with his lot right now. Liverpool win the first silverware of the year. They will hope it provides a springboard to go and win three more. They have the FA Cup. They play Southampton in the week. They have the Europa League. They've been drawn to play Sparta Prague. And they have the Premier League in which they sit top because, of course, their game from this match week was played on Wednesday and they beat Luton 4-1. Chelsea versus Tottenham was postponed because of Chelsea's involvement in yesterday's cup game. And tonight we have West Ham versus Brentford in the Premier League, neither of whom are in particularly good spots right now. If we take a look at the Premier League table, Liverpool are top on 60 points. Manchester City have 59 and Arsenal have 58. Then it's Aston Villa on 52. Tottenham on 47, though they do have that game in hand. Manchester United on 44. Then Brighton, who you'll remember are having a a bad season, in 7th on 39. Wolves are up to 8th on 38 points. Their goal difference is finally zero. Congrats to them on that. Um, same as Manchester United and you've scored more goals than United as well so fair play Uh, then it's Newcastle on 37 West Ham on 36 obviously a game less played because they play tonight a win there for West Ham will propel them into 8th above Wolves Chelsea come next on 35 points 11th place but like I said earlier they do have the game in hand then it's Fulham on 32 Crystal Palace on 28 Bournemouth on 28. They do have that game in hand to play against Luton, which I believe is coming up this week. No, 13th of March, 13th of March, because it's FA Cup week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Everton are 15th. We'll discuss that after the break. Brentford are 16th, but they do have a game in hand over Everton. Nottingham Forest are 17th. Then it's a four-point gap to Luton, who have 20 points with that game in hand to play against Brentford. Then Burnley on 13 and Sheffield United on 13. We'll go to break. We'll come back. We're going to talk some Everton, some Premier League. Talk to you after this. Right. Welcome back. So, Everton, why are they in 15th in the league? The reason is that they have had Four of the 10 points that was taken off them, given back to them. Their 10-point deduction has been reduced to six on appeal. But, of course, they are facing another points deduction after their second breach of breaking the rules. Uh, They and Nottingham Forest both facing that second deduction, which would mean that Forest would go to 14 points and Everton to 15 points. Now, of course, they could appeal those and maybe the same outcome. Maybe it's six points on appeal, which would mean Everton on 19, Forest on 18, both of them below Luton, but Forest would be the one in the relegation spots, whereas Everton would be just outside. But Everton... 
You know, I mean, they, they haven't been a relegation team this season. They've been a lower mid-table team. If they hadn't been docked the points, they would sit 13th in the league, uh, below Fulham, ahead of Crystal Palace. Defensively, they've been one of the better teams in the Premier League this season. Only Liverpool, City, Arsenal... Only Liverpool, City and Arsenal have a better defensive record than Everton. Everton have conceded 34 goals in the season. That's one less than Villa, two less than United, four less than Spurs. And it is the strength of that defence that will likely keep them up, even with a second points deduction. And even if the second points deduction was left in full, their defensive record should still keep them up. That and the fact that Burnley and Sheffield United are so, so bad that you only need to finish above one other team. And Luton will be in that mix. Forrest will be in that mix. You only need to finish above one of them. Simple message, and the same message will apply for Nottingham Forest if and when their points deduction lands. I would imagine it will be in the next couple of weeks. Um, there was talk that Forrest was going to land last week. It didn't. I wonder if that has been delayed so that they they give Forrest and Everton their deductions together. So maybe they were holding off on waiting for this appeal on the first one to play out. Look, it's a bonus four points for Everton, and they should be happy with it. They've only lost one of their last five. Now, they haven't won in their last five. They haven't won in a while. But as long as they continue to grind out points the way they did at the weekend, they should be okay. They should be okay. Forest, it's going to be a little bit trickier for them because they're not strong defensively. They've conceded 48 goals this season, and only the bottom three have conceded more than them. Now, they do score at a better clip than Everton, but Luton have scored more than them. Brentford have scored more than them. And these are not teams that score a lot of goals. So as we look forward with 12 games left, 13 for some teams, 12 games left in this season, you're seeing teams start to bunch up. There's a top three. Then there's a next two in Villa and Spurs. United have had this recent run that obviously ended at home to Fulham where they've tried to put themselves in that group having moved away from the group below which is Brighton, Wolves, Newcastle, West Ham and Chelsea. And had they won at the weekend they would have gone level on points with Spurs although Spurs would have had the game in hand and do have a significantly better goal difference. But there is definitely going to be a battle for that fourth spot, as there will be for the title. And then there's going to be a battle for the Conference League spot, because realistically, whoever doesn't finish in the top four, be it, let's say, Tottenham and United, they'll get Europa League spots. And then it'll be between Brighton, Wolves, Newcastle, Chelsea and West Ham for the Conference League. Then there's the 
going nowhere quick group, which is Fulham, Palace, Bournemouth, Brentford, they're going to be safe. It's not pretty. It's not a particularly enjoyable season for any of them, but they're going to be safe. And then we'll have that bottom group, which will be Everton, assuming the points deduction. Everton, Forest, Luton, Burnley and Sheffield United. Now, if the Premier League doesn't levy heavy penalties on Everton and Forest, let's say it's only six points, then it's much easier for them to see a path. But if they end up five and six points behind Luton, that's just going to be really difficult. If it's six points that they get and they're one and two points behind Luton, you'd back both of them to stay up quite comfortably in the end. The bottom three, Luton, to be fair, they've done themselves proud. They are very, very hard to play against. Nobody enjoys playing against Luton. And they've managed to take points from 10 games this season, which is only one less than Brentford. Now, unfortunately for them, it's five wins, five draws. For Brentford, it's seven wins, four draws. But Burnley and Sheffield United, my God. Three wins each, four draws each, 19 defeats each. It's 12 games left and you've lost 19 games. To concede 58 goals in 26 games is a travesty. That's what Burnley have done. And Burnley have conceded eight less than Sheffield United. That is that is scandalously bad defending. Burnley and Sheffield United are definitely going down. We, we can take that one to the bank. The other spot, much will depend on these points deductions. If they're not 10 points or they're 10 points and then get reduced on appeal this season, I think Luton are pretty much odds on to go. And it will be, I think it will be sealed with four or five games left in the season. If it is 10 points and it's not reduced on appeal, then it will be really interesting and then it may well go to the final day. And Everton, I think, have a pretty tough run in. There's going to be a lot of clubs in the summer with some big decisions to make. Now, Liverpool obviously have a huge decision to make. Who's replacing Jurgen Klopp? City, not many big decisions. We we expect Pep will be there next year. Arsenal will have some decisions to make because we don't know what way they're going to be financially this summer in terms of their ability to spend money. So it may be that they have to look at a couple of tough sales to try and raise some cash to go and spend. The same is true of Villa. They're up against the FFP wall, having spent heavily under Dean Smith and then under Gerrard. And they might have to sell somebody. And the two names that seemed obvious were Bubakar Kamara, because he was in on a free, and Jacob Ramsey, because he came to the academy, and selling either of those would have represented a heavy, heavy amount of profit. 50 plus million for either of them in terms of profit, which would have really opened things up in what they could have done this summer. Kamara is now injured and likely not back till 
October time. I do wonder if they consider selling Ramsey. Now, I personally wouldn't because he's a homegrown player and I think he's got a chance to be a great player. But who else is there that has real value that they didn't spend money on? Like Ollie Watkins would bring in a big fee. He would also cost a big fee to replace. Like if if it was Ramsey who left, you could play Leon Bailey on the left and Moussa Diaby on the right. And that might work for you. So you maybe could replace him internally and not have to worry about buying somebody in. But Watkins, they would have to buy somebody in because John Duran is not ready for that role yet. Spurs will have some decisions to make. How big are they willing to go in the summer to back Ange? Spent pretty big last summer. Now, admittedly, some of that was money that was already committed on Kulisevsky and on Poro. But, you know, they'll also have to be paying attention to FFP because it'll be another season potentially out of the Champions League. So things will start to get a little bit tight for them. So maybe they'd have to look at a sale. Now, they spent pretty big money on a lot of those players. The one who could represent significant profit would be Papi Matarsar. But I think they'd be mental to sell him because he's so good and he's so young. United's big decision will be, will they keep Eric Ten Hag? Brighton's big decision might well be, who replaces Roberto De Zerbi? Because he might get a big offer. Wolves also up against FFP. Who's the sale? Is it Neto? Is it Aitnuri? Do you try and sell some lesser important players? Less important players even? And try and just skirt the edges? Toon have a big decision to make over Eddie Howe. West Ham have a big decision to make over David Moyes. Chelsea have a big decision to make over Maurizio Pochettino. With Fulham, my assumption is that Marco Silva is happy there and that he'll stay. But there's no guarantee he doesn't get offered the West Ham job and decide that that's what he wants to do. But in terms of their big decisions, it will be it'll be around Joe Polina as things stand. Crystal Palace, I mean, the concern for them is that somebody comes in and starts cherry-picking. You've got Elise, you've got Eze, you've got Gwehi, all very highly regarded. So their big decisions might be, well, who do we find to replace these lads? The hope would be, if you're them, that you can sell one max and try and keep the rest. Czech Dukure would have been another that probably would have left this summer, but Torn Achilles means he likely stays put. But then your big decision is which of the three would you be the most okay with leaving, with losing rather? Olise, Eze, or Gwehi? That's a tough call. It's a really tough call. Bournemouth, it's going to be who replaces Dominic Solanke because I don't think he'll be there next season. Everton, who knows? If the 777 takeover doesn't happen, 
they're they're going to breach FFP again, and they're going to hit a bit of a spiral here. But the big decision will be: Do you sell Jared Brantwaite or Amadou Onana, or potentially both, and look to reinvest that money and build your team? Because you'd potentially get, I guess, somewhere in the region of 130 to 140 million for those two. But are you better off keeping them, selling whatever else you can, and trying to build round them? Because they're both really young and they're both really, really good. Now, Sean Dyche is doing Onana's value no use at all by leaving him sitting on the bench and playing an inferior player in midfield instead of him. With Brentford, the big decision has pretty much already been made. Igor Thiago has been signed. He will replace Ivan Tony. But they may have a decision to make over who replaces Thomas Frank if Thomas Frank was to be offered the Newcastle job or the West Ham job, both of which I think he could get offered. Nottingham Forest, I mean, they made their big decision in sacking Steve Cooper. They've got Nuno. I believe he's committed till the end of next season. But they've obviously breached FFP once. They're going to have to cut some costs. The only really big ticket item there is Morgan Gibbs-White. So are you willing to sell him? Or do you try and make sales on the fringes from the 57 squad players that you bought over the last year and a half? Luton, I don't think, have any big decisions to make unless Rob, Rob Edwards gets offered another job and decides to leave. Other than that, I think Luton are in a very, very steady position. Even if they go down, if they go down, they're in a great spot because they've got a championship-ready team. Not just that, like, will do okay, like a could-win-the-championship-ready team and a manager that I think has grown immeasurably this season. I assume Burnley are as committed to company as Luton are to Edwards. Nobody is coming in for Vincent Company this summer. Let me rest Burnley fans, um, put, put their minds at rest. Nobody's coming in for him this summer. So he'll be there, barring an unforeseen change. But you will have some decisions to make over some of those players. Can you afford to take that squad down into the championship? Now, most likely they all have relegation clauses in their contracts, so they will all likely take pay cuts, but will you have to sell one or two? Sheffield United have a decision to make over Chris Wilder. I don't think the Chris Wilder replacing Paul Heckenbottom thing has worked. Don't think it's worked at all. So I think that's their big decision for the summer. So there we go. Back for the last part after this break. Right, welcome back. So if you're wondering just how petty I am, my day yesterday was made better, not just by winning by Liverpool winning the cup, but also by the fact that Ajax lost 2-0 and Jordan Henderson has been dropped by Ajax. Uh, sat on the bench, didn't come off the bench, but lost again. And that's one win in the last 18 games he's been involved in the matchday squad for. So that's tremendous stuff. Captain Courageous at it again. We will do the gossip and wrap up with that today. Uh, Manchester City are bracing themselves for bids from the Saudi Pro League for KDB. 
it will take an offer of 100 million for City to even cons- consider a sale. Fair enough. Chelsea are willing to sell Robert Sanchez. Well, it wasn't smart to buy him in the first place. And could bring in Aaron Ramsdale as his replacement. Um, Somebody stop Chelsea, please. Chelsea have been scouting Jules Kunde as they consider making a summer approach to Barcelona. He already turned you down in quite spectacular fashion once before. Leave that one alone. Uh, Arsenal are interested in Juventus forward Keenan Yildiz, but the Turkish international is also on the radar of Liverpool and Borussia Dortmund. He does look very, very talented. Everton are set to target Sunderland's English defender Dan Ballard if compatriot Jared Branthwaite leaves the club this summer. Um, I would say they should probably look at Ballard anyway because... James Tarkovsky's 30 now, 31. And you might want to be looking for a long-term partner for Branthwaite. Uh, not sure he'd be the one, but certainly be a good squad player. He's been very good for Sunderland since joining them from Arsenal, where he came through the academy. Uh, Manchester United could move for Guido Rodriguez of Real Betis. He has had a contract in the summer. He's a decent player. Doesn't solve their problems, but he's a decent player. Saudi Arabian clubs... Al Itahad and Al Nazir will target Raphael Varane this summer. Manchester United are keeping an eye on Glaison Bremer as a possible replacement for Varane and could offer between 60 and 70 million euro for him. Jesus wept. West Ham are ready to smash their transfer record for Dominic Solanke this summer. I, I do like the idea of Solanke there. If they keep Bowen and Kudus, I assume they lose Paqueta. Manchester City could move for Paqueta if Bernardo Silva leaves the club. England youth winger Adam Berry is set to sign for Nottingham Forest after leaving Manchester United. He's very talented by all accounts. Manchester United, Arsenal and Tottenham are interested in signing Fenerbahce's 24-year-old Polish midfielder Sebastian Szymanski. Now, he is really gifted, lovely left-footed playmaking type. Little bit of Mesut Ozil about him. He's had an odd career to date. Came through at Leslie Warsaw, has been linked with a lot of clubs and somehow ended up going to Dinamo Moscow. I went to Feyenoord on loan last season and helped them win the league and was magnificent for them. And then joined Fenerbahce this summer for 10 million. Really, really good player. Uh, it's it's beyond time he made his move to a top league. Don't know that he's a starter for any of those clubs. And I don't think Arsenal need him because they already have a backup for Odegaard in Fabio Vieira, which is what he would be. Now, maybe they'd sell Vieira and buy him, but that just seems like moving the pieces around and not really improving. For Tottenham, if they sell La Celso, he'd be a good backup for Madison. Um, that would be an improvement in that position. I think LaCelso overall is a better player. Uh, I don't really see how he fits at United. So, you know, Aston Villa will not make Nicolo Zaniolo's move permanent at the end of the season. Uh, West Ham and Crystal Palace are among the clubs interested in Ollie Box, who is a young midfield player playing for Dartford. 
think he's 18 or 19. I've seen his name mentioned to a couple of other clubs as well. Brighton were linked of late too. Uh, Matthias De Ligt's future at Bayern Munich will be assessed once the club decide who will replace Thomas Tuchel as manager. I don't think De Ligt and Kim works as a pairing. I would, if I was taking over at Bayern, I would be looking to sell De Ligt and Upamecano personally, and I would be looking for the right type of partner for Kim, and that would be the starting point for my my rebuild. Will be those two at centre back. Um, on to Sunday's gossip then. Manchester United's new regime are lining up a shock move for Ross Barkley. They're just not though. Real Madrid have started to analyse the prospect of re-signing Rafael Varane and Casemiro. There's zero truth to that. Uh, La Liga president Javier Tepas says there is a 99% chance Kylian Mbappe will join Real Madrid after leaving PSG in the summer. I I think that's a 100% chance, to be fair. Um, Tottenham held talks. With Chelsea about Conor Gallagher, yada yada. Liverpool have identified Ruben Amram and Julian Nagelsmann as alternatives if they fail to land Xabi Alonso. I don't think Alonso is the outright top choice, personally. Uh, I would imagine it's much closer than people are making out. I would imagine Amram it features very strongly on Liverpool's list. Bayern Munich are prepared to hand Alonso a twenty million a year salary to leave Bayer Leverkusen in the summer. Barcelona sporting director Deco says the club intend to keep Ronald Arejo and Frankie de Jong. Personally, I would sell Frankie. I would keep Arejo without question, and I'd probably make him captain, but I would I would be moving Frankie on. You get big money for him, and, well, frankly, you've, you've got better options in the long term in Gavi and Pedri uh, for those number eight positions. Theo Hernandez is one of the options being considered by Bayern Munich to replace Alfonso Davies, who will be sold by the German club in the summer if he does not sign a new contract. Uh, Davies is one of Real Madrid's objectives for this summer. Leeds would be keen to bring Calvin Phillips back to the club if they are promoted. That makes sense, and I think that's the best move for everybody. Um, AC Milan and Inter Milan are also being credited with interest in Zeminski, Zemanski, Manchester United striker Mason Greenwood wants to remain at Hitafe, according to the club's president, uh, Angel Torres. Well, Angel Torres, for signing Mason Greenwood, you are a dreadful set of lads. And if you decide to keep him, you'll be even worse. Five goals, five assists. Is that really worth it for the damage that's been done to your reputation? I'm not sure it is. If we take a quick gander at the Liga table, in your 10th, it's not like you're pulling up any trees. Netherlands defender Denzel Dumfries has resumed talks with Inter Inter Milan about extending his contract. Roy Hodgson plans to stay in football after leaving Crystal Palace and is looking for a consultancy job, possibly abroad. He wants to go live somewhere nice. And fair play to him. Conor Gallagher wants to stay at Stamford Bridge. Uh, he's got 18 months left in his deal. He'd like a new one. 
Arsenal are monitoring Evan Ferguson. There's zero chance he's moving this summer. Victor Osman could be an option for Arsenal. Not really. But they face competition from Chelsea and PSG. I'd imagine there'll be a bit more than that as well. Uh, but PSG will, will probably break the bank to get him. Ajax goalkeeper Diant Ramaj is on Arsenal's radar with a Germany under-20 goalkeeper, uh, who is 22, by the way, being lined up as a potential replacement if Aaron Ramsdale leaves the club. Based on Edu and Arteta's track record of buying goalkeepers, Ramsdale, Raya, Matt Turner, I'm, I'm just not confident that that's going to be a deal that works out for them. Uh, Jack Harrison wants to turn his move, his loan move from Leeds to Everton into a permanent move, even if Leeds are promoted back to the Premier League. That makes sense. Jim Ratcliffe wants a new pay structure introduced at the club with salaries of players being more dependent on success. The problem is you've already got an enormous squad full of players already earning well above what they should be earning. Manchester United will target a striker, a right-back, and a right-sided centre-back during a summer overhaul of their squad. Fair play to you. About time you've realised that those are the type of players you need. <clears throat> Though, you, you know, you have kind of spent a lot of money on strikers in recent years, and maybe you should just give them a chance. You know, just just stick with Hoysland. You know, just just let him let him play. Uh, Anthony Martial is set to leave at the end of the season. United have opted against triggering the one-year extension to his contract. I often think about the Anthony Martial deal. I think about his debut when Martin Tyler had himself an orgasm on commentary. Uh, he moved to United <clears throat> in September, 1st of September, 2015, nine, nearly nine years ago. 36 million with potential add-ons going to 56, sorry, 57.6 million. United ended up paying just under 45 million for Martial. Now, bear in mind, 45 million. He had had one season, really, as a starter at Ajax. 48 games, 12 goals. He was 19 when they signed him. He had a good first season, scored 17 and 49. Then he got 8 and 42, 11 and 45, 12 and 38, 23 in 48 in 1920. Since then, 7 in 36. One in 11 in a season which he was loaned out to Sevilla, played 12 games, scored once. So that season, two in 23. Last year, he got nine in 29, and this season, he has two in 19. Since joining United, he's played 319 games between them and the loan at Sevilla, and he scored 91 goals in nine seasons. Can you say flop? Juventus have set an asking price of 51 million on Keenan Yildes. 51 million. He's 18. He's played 15 senior games and scored three goals. Uh, they nicked him out of the Bayern Academy where he'd been uh, for a year. No, for 10 years. Sorry, for 10 years. Um, yeah. 
very, very highly regarded. I, I think Juve would be nuts to let him go. Absolutely nuts to let him go. I'd also point out he's not actually a striker. He's more of an attacking midfielder. Um, former Manchester City striker Kun Aguero could make a remarkable return to football. The Argentine retired in December 2021 when he suffered a cardiac arrhythmia playing for Barcelona. But his cardiologist says he could now play again. I really hope he doesn't. Uh, Endrick is set to join Real Madrid when he turns 18 in July. But Palmieri's are trying to keep him until December so that he plays the full season with them. And I do think that will be the smarter decision. Let him play the full season with Palmieri's. Join in the January of 2025. Have the remainder of that season to fit in, bed in, get used to life in Spain, get used to his new surroundings, train with the team, but also recover from the previous season. And then, you know, towards the end of the year, you start to involve him. It's going to be a couple of years, I'd imagine, before he's playing a huge role at Real, like a hugely impactful role. He'll play a number of games, but I I think they have to be careful with him. He's really special. Really, really special talent. Right, folks, that'll do. I will see you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Network.